know how it is in your home, but when we were raising our boys, the table often served as a school desk where homework would be done. And even today, sometimes it's an office desk. It's where mail piles up and bills get paid. But uh, a lot of times it was just a place where learning was going to happen. I remember many times us sitting there and we would be trying to help our kids do their homework or trying to make them do their homework with a lot of threats along the way. I mean, as parents, we, we had a desire that they pass certain subjects and make good grades and, and all those things. So around the table, there was knowledge trying to be passed around. Now, my problem as a parent is I found out when our boys were in middle school that a lot of my knowledge was out of date. Now, things like math, history, those things say relatively the same, except when they try to rewrite a little bit of history. But, you know, the sciences, I mean, they're always evolving. You know, one year coffee's good for you, the next year it's bad for you. And so we would sit around the table and doing biology or something like that, and I quickly found out that my knowledge was like 20 years old. It was out of date. And I couldn't help them in, in some of these issues. So I think it's interesting, this video, that a guy by the name of Buckminster Fuller, what a name, Buckminster, Buckminster Fuller created this knowledge doubling curve. In case you didn't catch it, he said that until about the year 1900, human knowledge was doubling every 100 years. So there actually could be people centuries ago who actually knew everything. And then he said at the end of World War II, he noticed that human knowledge was doubling about every 25 years. Now the speed of that has grown immensely. And today things are not as simple because even there's different types of knowledge growing at different rates of growth. Uh, nanotechnology. The knowledge in that is doubling about every two years. Clinical knowledge about every 18 months. Just human facts and knowledge out there for us to learn about every 13 months. And the latest from workers at IBM, because of the build-out now of the Internet, it is leading to a doubling of knowledge every 12 hours. Every 12 hours. Knowledge, facts, things growing at that kind of a rate. So I found comfort in that, thinking that every time I get on the Internet for an hour, my knowledge must just be exploding. <laughs> or is it? <laughs> is the Internet making us smarter? Or maybe not as smart? So we have at this time in history more knowledge than at any point. Our world has plenty of knowledge but it doesn't necessarily translate into wisdom and so that's what James is going to address here in chapter 3 verse 13 and following that's what we're going to study that we need to be focusing on wisdom and not just knowledge and as James shows us there's really two kinds of wisdom there's one to avoid one to embrace there are competing kinds of wisdom wisdom from above and wisdom from below and so, what needs to be on our table at all times is God's Word. 
because it's not just about facts, theories, knowledge. It's about the wisdom that comes from our holy, holy God. Wisdom and knowledge don't always go together. In fact, wisdom can often be learned from the fairly uneducated. Somebody did a survey of children, and they surveyed these kids on what their little nuggets of wisdom are that they would want to pass on to future generations. Patrick, age 10, said, Never trust a dog to watch your food. I think that was probably wisdom learned by experience right there. That wasn't something he got out of a textbook somewhere. Michael, age 14. When your dad is mad and he asks you, do I look stupid? Don't answer him. <laughs> That's pretty good for a middle schooler. I like this Michael kid. I'd like to meet him because he also said, never tell your mom her diet's not working. <laughs> Randy, age nine, stay away from prunes. <laughs> you have to wonder what Randy had discovered or what he was reading, that little bit of wisdom. I like Lauren, age nine, felt markers are not good to use as lipstick. Joel, age 10, this is wisdom learned from experience, apparently. Don't pick on your sister when she's holding a baseball bat. <laughs> now, there's a lot of wisdom there. And it didn't come from the doubling of the Internet. But in fact, James, his whole letter is an application of the purposes of trials in our life, how to live our life. And in order for the purposes of God to be worked out in the believer's life, the one thing that's required is wisdom from above. And so you might remember when we started our study in James, you go back to chapter 1, James asked this, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God. If you need wisdom, ask God, who gives liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Knowledge is at our disposal. It's in God's word. It's how to act. It's how to behave. And so James begins to deal with our lives in verse 13 of chapter 3. And so he asks this question, Who among you, church, is wise and understanding? Are there any wise and understanding people here? And he answers that question very interestingly. He says, Let him show by his good behavior his deeds. And the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Who among you is wise and understanding? The Greek word here for, for wise um, means to be a, a practical teacher. And recall Pastor Jerry last week, he talked about teachers and all of us who are teachers of the word or we're parents we're all teachers we're dispensing knowledge we're giving advice and we're going to be held at a higher standard because of that go back and listen to jerry's sermon last week excellent on that who who, who is wise and who has understanding this 
describes an expert, someone skilled in a particular task. So, so who's a teacher? Who's a wise teacher? Who's skilled at getting it across? Well, here's who that person is. Someone who shows his good behavior through his deeds. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't have anything to do with head knowledge or studies. Wisdom is, first of all, about our behavior. Because that's what the world sees first. They don't care about our knowledge, our biblical knowledge, our spiritual knowledge. What they see first is how we act and how we behave. And boy, James is big on showing our works to the world, right? Be doers of the word. Not hearers only. He's big on actions, big on behavior. And so he strikes right here into our hearts because behavior is short-lived if our heart is not transformed. We've talked about this before, raising kids. You know, you have one child picking on another sibling. Uh, You tell them to stop. You threaten them. You discipline them. You put them in time out and... And, and they can change their behavior for a while. They'll stop. But until the heart is changed, they're going to go right back to it. Last week, Jerry talked about taming the tongue. We can control the tongue for a while, but until the heart is changed, the tongue remains untamed. All of us as adults, we can stop behavior for a while. But we will indulge in it again until our hearts are renewed. And this isn't just true for bad behavior. It's good for for good behavior on the positive side. We can try to start a new spiritual discipline. I'm going to pray every day. I'm going to read God's word every day. It's going to be on the table every day when we teach our kids. But that too will fade away until our hearts are melted by the love of Christ and He sits firmly in the driver's seat of our life, until our hearts are changed, our behaviors aren't changed. Who's wise and understanding among you? Let Him show His good behavior in His deeds. So James goes quickly to the heart of this. And as he looks at our hearts, he sees some evil things. Three things in particular he points out in verse 14. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and he says, don't be arrogant. Because if we do so, we lie against the, the truth. James sees this bitter jealousy in our hearts. Who of us have never been jealous of something or someone? Some days when I pull out of the church... My 12-year-old Lincoln Mercury, my grandpa car. I'm amazed to see the cars that come out <laughs> out of our community here. I mean, they used to be nice cars, but it's like now I'm seeing Maserati. I'm seeing half a million dollar cars coming out of here. And I go, man, Lord, why can't I have one of those, you know? When we go in other people's homes... And if it becomes bitter even, there's no wisdom in us. There's no understanding in us. There's no appreciation for what God is doing in our life. No matter what our means may be. 
Wisdom is, first of all, about behavior, jealousy. By the way, jealousy is not necessarily an evil word. It's a matter of the heart. It's possible to be jealous of the right things. I love the Old Testament, how God is jealous for his people. He's jealous for our hearts. He goes to battle when we go astray. He's, he's a warrior because he's jealous for our hearts, and he will not rest until we're fully tuned into him. James points out to selfish ambition. Likewise, ambition is a kind of a neutral word. It, it's good or evil depending upon the intent of our heart. And then he sees some arrogance. I'll show you a few examples of these three issues that James has just mentioned. See if you can see some of these. What's stirring in the heart of that little boy, you think? And if those are his sisters, what's stirring in their heart? Like, uh-huh, we're good. I love this one. Does that not say it all? <laughs> now, isn't it good we can use humor to make a point? But we put these things together, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, arrogance. The result is we twist the truth. We lie against the truth. We go counter to the truth, the wisdom of God. And it is a matter of our heart changing our behavior. So, James says there's these competing kinds of wisdom. And in verse 15, he begins to follow that out. He describes the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below. Verse 15 and 16. This wisdom is not that which comes from above. So where does it come from? It comes from below. It's earthly, natural, demonic. But where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder and every evil thing. This false kind of wisdom does not come from above. It comes from below. And it's comprised of three things. It's earthly, it's natural, and it's demonic. Wow. Demonic. We act demonic sometimes. The first false wisdom is it's earthly or worldly. It's, it's of this world. It's of the realm of Satan. It's not from above. It's not from God's word. It, it, it measures success in worldly terms. Its goals are culturally defined, not biblically defined. Now, there are some commendable things about earthly knowledge. But there's nothing commendable about earthly wisdom. There are people who are non-believers in Jesus Christ. They're money managers and they can, money, uh, they can manage your money well to some extent. Why? Because they're good at it. They understand financial knowledge. But when it comes to spiritual wisdom, they have a ceiling. <laughs> they can only go so far. And God's wisdom goes counter to earthly knowledge and wisdom. This whole thing of giving 10% of your income to the Lord, it goes counter to what most financial planners are ever going to tell you, other than, yeah, you ought to be nice and do good things. 
their earthly wisdom does not line up with the wisdom that's from above. The second competing and false wisdom described here is natural. Not only is it worldly, it, it, it's natural. It's what comes naturally. Naturally is best understood when you and I, we, we act no different from the beast of the field. It's when we act naturally, not supernaturally. Yet the scripture says that man was created to be more than an animal. And James says that this kind of natural wisdom is wrong because when we play into this, it's like an animal kind of thing. How does it play out in, in our behavior? It's when we snap at people in anger, like, like a dog would, would guard his turf. We snarl at people in our anger. We treat them as our prey. They're just standing in the way of our, our personal survival. And again, the wisdom from above is counter to that. And Jesus says things like, love your enemy. That's not natural. It's supernatural. Not only love them, pray for them. Not only pray for them, give them your coat. There's a ceiling on earthly knowledge and wisdom, the knowledge from above, goes higher than that. Be kind to people who are ugly to you. Put your spouse's needs before yours. That's not natural. No, it's, it's supernatural. Worldly, natural, and boy, demonic. Now think about that. The wisdom of this world, it's demonic as demonic as any horror movie you've ever watched. Satan is in full control of this kind of behavior. He delights in it. Go back and review something Jerry said last week in James chapter 3, verse 6. And the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by what and whom? Health. And when our behavior is ungodly, it's just demonic. And this false wisdom, instead of bringing people together and families together and marriages together, it makes divisiveness even greater. Instead of producing peace, it produces conflict. And every one of us here this morning, right? Every one of us here this morning, we are capable of causing trouble in personal relationships. Every one of us. We can disturb personal relationships in any marriage, in any family, in any church. And that is the devil's sinister work in us. And it competes with the wisdom of God from above. So let's wrap this up with the opposite. Let's see the beauty of godly wisdom, this wisdom that comes from above. There's seven things that God um, shows us from where he reigns. Let's read the scriptures here in, in 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. 
And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So true wisdom is from above. It is not something that is naturally inside of any of us. It is foreign to us. And it must be placed there by God Almighty when we come into a saving relationship with Christ and we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, these things can be set in order that we get past knowledge and wisdom of the world. So this wisdom is, first of all, pure. It is first in rank. It is first in time, purity. God's wisdom is pure. It's the same words often translated holy. This wisdom, there's a purity about it. There's a cleanness before God. There's a holiness in this wisdom that characterizes our behavior. It comes forth from a truly wise person. This wisdom is so cleansed of all concealed motives and all of our self that has become pure enough to stand before holy God. This wisdom is peaceable. It promotes peace. It loves peace. It promotes peace above people, particularly God's people. Now, this is not peace at all cost because there's a time where we have to take a firm, unwavering stand for the things of God. But as best we can, we are, as Romans says, to be on peace with all people. This, this wisdom is, is pure, but it's peaceable. It wants people to dwell together in unity. And that's why this wisdom fights hard for our marriages. It fights hard for our kids and our grandkids because we recognize that unity is a very, very priceless commodity. And this false wisdom from below has no place in our lives. Now, peacemaking does not suggest um, abdication. I think there's a temptation, and it's from the gates of hell as well, that peace means, you know, I don't ever challenge anything that's going on. I just let it, let it slide. This is not peace at all cost. We don't abdicate by doing nothing. There's an old couple just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. Someone asked the husband the secret of their marital bliss. In his old southern slow drawl, he said, well... The wife and I, we had this agreement when we first got married. It went like this. When she was bothered about something, she'd just tell me and get it off her chest. And when I was mad at her about something, I'd just take a long walk. I suppose you could say, the secret to our marriage is the fact that I've largely led an outdoor life. <laughs> That's not peace. 
That's not peace. You know, if you find yourself always fighting with people, that should tell you that something's not right inside of you. If you're angry, you're hostile, you need to find out why. Because you can be sure that this anger and hostility is not inspired by God. It's wisdom that's from below. Real wisdom is characterized by the desire to get along with others. This wisdom is gentle, it's fair, it's equitable. In fact, most scholars will, will, will tell you there's really no English word to translate this word from the Greek. It's just one of those words um, that's hard to, to really find the right expression. So a lot of translators join it with the next word, reasonable. And so some of your translations may actually say gentle reasonableness. So they're, they're trying to, to do the best to interpret what God is saying here. Gentle, reasonable, to be approachable, to think of others first. It's hard to think about yourself when you're thinking about other people. We relinquish our lives for the sake of other people. And then it says it's full of mercy and good fruits. Now this word mercy is used only this one time in all the New Testament. Now, there are other words for mercy, but this word for mercy is used only here. And what it means is practical helps. What James is saying here is when you show mercy, it's not an attitude, it's an act that you do. Remember, James is big about works. Doers of the word, not hearers only. So we're not talking about feeling merciful for someone. We're talking about doing something merciful for someone. And that combines it with good fruits. It's not having mercy. It's showing mercy. And this kind of mercy being described here is not just for the person who's in trouble. This kind of mercy is for the person who has trouble and the trouble's their own doing. I have a hard time with that sometimes. I can be pretty judgmental. It's easy for me to be merciful toward people who are suffering unjustly. But when they walked into it, I'm kind of going, yeah, well, let's see how this one's going to work out for you. No, that's not what James... The wise person cast away that demonic part and not only feels merciful, but does something merciful for that person. And why is that? It's because God is merciful toward us. And God just didn't sit up there and say, you know, I feel sorry for those humans. No. He sent His Son to be our Savior. He put into action... His mercy and dying on the cross for us and being raised on the third day. And James reminds us this is a part of the fruits. And these fruits are something that it's not natural inside of us. It is produced by the work of the Holy Spirit. The next thing he talks about this wisdom is it's unwavering. I want to camp out here for just a second. I don't want us to miss this. This kind of wisdom is unwavering. 
It doesn't bend. It doesn't get off path. This wisdom from a God from above does not change. It is steady, straightforward. It doesn't get off an inch. It's always spot on. And there's a lot of talk in our culture about having an open mind. And there's a phrase being used that I don't totally get. Suspending judgment. How do you suspend judgment on certain things? The wisdom from above is based on the truths of God, on the certainties of God, the principles of God that never change. Consider this. If you're going somewhere, you set a course to get there, and you're off by just one degree. You start on your journey and you step one foot. You are off by 0.2 inches. Now, that, that's not much. What's, what's 0.2 inches? You're off course. After 100 yards, you'll be off course by a little over 5 feet. Now, that's not much. Unless you're hunting <laughs> or in war and you're shooting at a target a hundred yards off and you're off by five feet. After a mile, you'll be off 92 feet. One degree is starting to make a difference. And if you're flying in a plane from Dallas to San Antonio and your pilot is off one degree, you're going to miss the runway by six miles. There are not many roads to God. We're tempted with this open mind suspended. Well, well, you know, some of these religions have some truth to them. Yeah. There's something good about all of them, but they're off by not just a degree, but many degrees. There's not many ways to the Father. There's one way. And if you get off just a degree, you're going to miss a lot. This wisdom from God is unwavering. I think we, we miss the analogy. Some. I think sometimes when we're talking to people, it's like, okay, God's out there, and we all want to go to heaven. We all want to go to God, and, and here's what we got to do to get to God. And for Christ followers that, you know, you trust in the salvation of Jesus and repent of your sins, and you get on that road, and for somebody else, it's, well, you got to do this, and even for some Christians, they'll add this, and then you get all these other world religions, and you get the non-religions, and, and our focus is, is, is way out there to where God is. And many times we're off by more than one degree. 
And here's what the scripture calls us to do. Follow Jesus. Jesus takes a step, I take a step. Jesus takes a step, I take a step. And I might stumble, but if I'm following Jesus Christ, I'm on the path to God. I'll never be off any degrees at all because Jesus is blazing the trail. Our job is to stay right behind Jesus. That is unwavering wisdom that comes from above. If you're here today, you're not sure you're following Christ. You think you are. Been to church a few times. Maybe were baptized as a child. Said the right creed. I want to challenge you today to think this through. Am I really not just believing the right things, have the knowledge, but am I in my behavior following Jesus Christ so that I can know for certain by following Him I'm going to have eternity in heaven and a life that matters in this world. And I'll ask you today to clarify that. And once you clarified it, I hope you will make Jesus Christ your unequivocal Savior today and say, starting today, I will follow Him with my life. And the last thing about this wisdom, it's without hypocrisy. This wisdom from above is sincere, it's unfeigned, it's behavior has been modified according to the Holy Spirit. It's been transformed. The heart has been changed. There's no hypocrisy. It's without guile. And let me wrap this up. In the Bible, we're told of a story about how God came to King, King Solomon. And God told Solomon that he'd give him anything that he desired. And of all the things Solomon as a young king thought about, riches, power, prestige, all the things he desired, his request was, Lord, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. And so at the height of the spiritual power of Solomon, he wrote a lot of stuff, but in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, he marks the way out very clearly. He says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Knowledge not here, but knowledge here. And fools despise wisdom from above and instruction from above. Solomon nailed it. James echoes it. And yet later in life, the heart of Solomon that had once been so unwavering, so straight, started taking a different path. And he got off one degree at a time. And in his midlife and in his sunset years, he ceased to fear God. And he began to depend upon his own human wisdom. And get this. 
the wisest man in the world, he was no longer. He had become the world's most knowledgeable fool. So to my fellow believers, today is a time to repent and to get back on the road of following Jesus one step at a time. If we're going to be wise according to the wisdom from above, we've got to follow Jesus one step at a time. I'm going to say a prayer for us, and I want us to really take some time before you come and do communion just to get your heart right with God. To clear out all the caverns of selfishness, throw away the compass that you're on, All of that before we even attempt to take communion. And then one last thing I want to just challenge our men and our single moms. There needs to be a Bible on your table. Where you dine, where homework is done, where bills are paid. Nothing else is a reminder that we don't live according to the standards of this age. We live according to what the Bible teaches us. And men, I want to encourage you to be leaders in your home. You don't have to be great at praying, but you can be a leader making sure it gets done. Honey, I'm not really good at this. Could, could you say the prayer for the family? In reading the scriptures, you may not be the greatest reader in the world, but you can turn to one of your sons or daughters and who's a great reader and say, Honey, would you read God's word for us today? To be a leader in your home unwavering with wisdom that is first of all pure and peaceable full of mercy gentleness reasonableness without hypocrisy let me pray for you